0: This process had a time and a place, uh many, many years ago. Uh I want to say it's probably the early sixties, mid-sixties. Uh, and I blame Ford Motor Company. You know, if you're a Chevy guy, you'd blame Ford. Uh, but <laughs> but there is a tie between Ford Ford Motor Company and the Pentagon and how we ended up with this ridiculous process. All players,
1: low down, active, hold by one, three, two, seven. seven, tape.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the merge where we make sense of defense in an enjoyable way. If you're looking to learn more about the intersection of military technology, history, policy, strategy, and industry, you're in the right place. I'm Mike Benitez, and on the show today, we're going to talk about how the Pentagon buys stuff. Uh, Don't worry, I promise that we'll keep it lively. Uh, to help me out today, I've brought in not one ringer, but two ringers whose voices may be very familiar to some of our listeners listening to defense podcasts. So we have Eric Lofgren from acquisition talk podcast and the blog and his partner in crime, uh, Matt McGregor. So welcome.
2: Thanks guys. Thanks Mike.
0: And for those who have never heard of the acquisition talk, I'll put the, the link in the show notes, uh, Eric. Congratulations, you hit 150 episodes recently of a uh, podcast about defense acquisition. So congratulations. And why don't, you, uh, why don't you just tell the audience a little bit about, your, uh, about yourself and why you are a defense acquisition expert.
2: <laughs> I don't know about expert, but we're all learning together, right? But um, yeah, so i spent some years uh, in, in the building uh, doing cost estimates and all sorts of stuff. And I was just like, man, none of this seems to be working right. Let's just go figure out the history and figure out what's actually going on. And so, when you know, once you go down the rabbit hole, it's hard to come back out. And uh, left the, left the building, came to George Mason, started this blog and podcast about four years ago. And really, it's just been a, a cycle of learning and from people like Matt and yourself. So the blog and the podcast is really a way for me to kind of absorb and learn and hopefully put out content
0: that people enjoy as well i've actually been a guest on your podcast uh, a couple times it's been it's been a little over a year year and a half ago uh so thanks for returning the favor and coming on the show today <laughs> uh matt uh, so matt is a is another defense acquisition expert uh but he's has a little bit different background so matt why don't you go tell us about yourself
1: yeah i'm also like like eric say not an expert but uh you know you know uh, a nerd and uh like to try to to speed yeah, my background is more of a program manager, you know, coming through the ranks uh, as a lieutenant, you know, uh, just retired as an 05 and, you know, so managing different programs along the way, got to spend about five years in the building, uh, going to see the budget process, the requirements process, the, you know, all the kind of intricacies of the building life. So, so yeah, I come from, a, from that perspective, just, you know, some hands-on, some, some seeing it from the headquarters perspective and now just kind of been observing it um, and also my MITRE role, I support a number of programs. So get to hear some of the pain points.
0: I didn't realize that you recently retired. So congratulations. You've been doing the uh, the reserve gig for quite a while uh, while you were working at MITRE. And for uh, for the folks who don't know what MITRE is, it's what's called a federally funded research and development center. It's actually a, a nonprofit that manages multiple FFRDCs. I think six of them actually. So. Uh, so Matt's over there at MITRE putting out some good stuff, and we'll talk about that in a little bit with some other of his uh, his teammates that are uh, equally passionate about defense acquisitions and, uh, more importantly, fixing defense acquisitions. Uh, so if you couldn't tell, uh, the fact that uh, Eric and Matt's background, that there's a university centers and uh, organizations devoted to just learning about how the Pentagon buys stuff, should tell you just how complex this is. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the, uh, the like a 101 style episode, so consider this a wave top uh, over some of the processes. So what we're going to talk about today is the process of deciding what to buy, how to go about buying the thing that we've decided to buy, and then we're going to cover a uh, a shortcut to speed things up uh, that Matt uh, has been writing about recently called an MTA, and we'll talk about that and what that actually means. Then we'll jump into a couple examples so you can actually, uh, put some context to the things that we're going to talk about. And at the end, uh, Eric and Matt start thinking about it. I'm going to ask you about some story time because there's got to be some just ridiculous stories of working in defense acquisitions for, uh, for as much as you guys have, I am going to be along for the ride to help keep it simple because I am truly the lymphac in this conversation. <laughs> All right. So to get started, uh, I like to get started with the market di- dynamics and so You know, if you played the game Monopoly, you have uh, you have many buyers and you have one seller uh, and working in defense acquisitions. It's the opposite. And uh, the opposite of a monopoly is when you have many sellers and only one buyer and that one buyer is the Department of Defense. And so instead of a monopoly, it's called a uh, I don't even know how to say a monopsony, monopsony. That's the word of the day, folks, monopsony. (laughs) That is the opposite of a monopoly. And so that is one of the interesting parts of the, the, the market dynamics. The other part of being in that monospony, uh, (laughs) is the size and scope of what we're talking about. So yeah, there's only one customer, but it's a big customer. And, uh, and that buyer has three and a half trillion dollars of assets in about 4,800 locations across the world. Oh, by the way, speaking of the world, it's the department of defense is the largest employer of the world with 2.9 million people. That's twice the size of Amazon, by the way. Uh, it's got the largest military budget in the world, $835 billion. It was just passed uh, and signed into law. It has the largest amount of discretionary spending in the federal government. It's 50% of the discretionary spending every year from uh, the United States. And all of it is done in the largest office building in the world, which is the Pentagon. Okay, so that's the context. So now let's talk about how the the Pentagon determines uh, what to buy and then we can talk about how to buy it. So I've heard this referred to this process as a three-legged stool and I can't remember where that came from. It's probably not even accurate. Uh, And I had to deal with requirements uh, an acquisition strategy and programming. I know programming gets a little bit into the follow-on about the the process, and that's PBBE, which we'll get to. But I'd like to start with requirements, because I, I think that's that kind of helps frame the conversation. If I have a problem, and before I can go find a solution to my problem, I have to capture the problem. Uh, so, um, Eric, you want to kick things off with uh, requirements? So, can the Pentagon go out and buy something without a requirement?
2: As you know, that's of course not, and you know the way that the Pentagon likes to work. It, it actually started in the fifties and sixties. It's this very linear process, right? You just, you think about what you wanna buy. You think about the different ways you wanna buy it. And then you like go to high technology readiness level stuff. And then you eventually you go to acquisition and requirements or in contracting. So it's this very linear thing. And that whole process can take 10, 15 years from when you start to think about the requirement to when you're really starting to feel get initial operational capability. Well, it starts actually with the requirements, but the requirements come from the strategy, right? So you have these strategic documents like the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Strategy, those kind of feed into um, a bunch of you know, operational plans and concepts of operations. And so you have like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, which has his own program recommendations and things like that. Um, you have integrated priority lists that kind of come out of uh, the combatant command. So they kind of think about what they want. Um, and then all of this kind of gets corralled into what's like the joint capabilities, integration, and development system, the JCID. So this is like in the joint staff where you have uh, military folks who really think about, hey, we have a capability that we need. Um, oftentimes it's just like, hey, we had a program like an F-35. We need to recap that program eventually. What's the follow-on to that? Or there's something going on in the battlefield and um, soldiers are are getting hurt or dying. This is something that actually happens, you know, of course, in the global war on terror. So that says, oh, we need to defeat, you know, improvised explosive devices. So we have a requirement to defeat those types of things. Uh, But Matt's actually done a lot of research on, on the requirements front. So I'll kick it over to him. So before
0: I kick it over to Matt. If you haven't seen the movie, the Pentagon Wars. yes. Uh, so, so Matt, if there, I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes, <laughs> Pentagon Wars. It's if you, for those who don't know, it was a movie that came out in the, in the late nineties starring uh, the hero which is the guy from the princess bride yeah. against the villain, which is a two-star army general for, uh, played by Kelsey Grammer. And there, there's a part of the movie where, um, you know, they go off on this tangent about you can't just go buy sheep. You have to have sheep specs. Sheep specs. What is sheep specs? Specifications. Shorn or unshorn? Um, rams,
1: ewes, or lambs? Merinos are short hair. I mean, shorn Marino ewes or unshorn
0: Merino rams. Big horns are domestic. Domestic shorn lambs are horn unshorn. Probably Kelsey Grammer's better role. Uh, so, in the context of sheep specs, uh, Matt, take it away. Tell us about requirements. It's funny. You talk, I mentioned that movie. I actually just made
1: my dad watch that. Uh, so it's a, a classic. <laughs> One thing I'll say about requirements too is there are there's a lot of varieties. And I think the three uh, the, the the three schools that you were talking about there is actually kind of based, sometimes referred to as big A acquisition. Now the new term is uh, the Defense Acquisition Decision Support System. Got, got a longer acronym. But yeah, requirements, PVE, and acquisition. The acquisition processes. So yeah, most most programs, if you're starting out, you sort of expect there to be some type of requirement that informs your, um, your your program, but that can take different flavors. I'll say so it can be something very formal, like a very large CDD, something that you would expect a, a tank or a fighter jet, uh, something like that, to have lots of KPP. So for acronym, yeah, keep track. There's a so lot of acronyms. CDD capability is, development okay, documents. That is the primary one. There's like an interim capability, initial capabilities document, and then a capabilities development document. Those are the two primary ones that are the most familiar to most programs. Uh, The ICD initial one is more for like the early stage of the program, CDD is for the later stage. Um, But there are other flavors. So for software, there's actually two different types of documents, one called a software initial capabilities document, another one called a IT um, initial capabilities document. So we'll get into the, we'll the minutiae right here, but but just know there's different flavors. But it can also, a program can be started literally with a chief uh, of one of the services writing a memo. I have seen that. Um, it could be, um, you know, a JUAN, you know, something like an urgent need. It could be something that was validated uh, at, a, at a, you know, a different level, for, uh, usually from the joint staff, but but doesn't necessarily have to be a big document. But in most cases, they lengthy documents. GAO did a great study last year about joint staff, and they found that it does take, on average, like a year, nine months to a year to get one through the system. Can take two e- Eight, 800, 800 days. days. Well, that is that, the average. Was, it takes... No, those were the, those were the edge cases. There was one, there was one or two yeah, of there are there some edge they, they were. cases that were like crazy. I, I don't know the story about this, but... Well, it's
2: supposed to be 147 days is like a CDD. Oh, yeah. Like what you're not not supposed that. to be it's able something.
0: to do it right it goes back to the to the sheep specs though right so after we validated the specs it's going to take six months of studies to make sure the requirements for the sheep specs is correct and then it's going to take another four to six months in the movie to staff the paperwork for the requirements to go across the hall and so you know a year from now they'll have the uh the sheep specs and they can then go ask congress for the money to go buy the sheep which will take another year and then by the time you need the sheep you know it doesn't matter oh yeah anymore. the the <laughs> AOA that goes, that supports, there's a bunch of other things that kind
1: of go along with it. But but no, you're absolutely yeah. right. It's And it's done, a lot of these things are done in what they call high performance team, where you literally get a group together to figure out what those key performance parameters, those must dos, and then along with some of the other like should dos, like, uh, you know, key KSAs, key system attributes or other system attributes. Anyway, the whole process is like, I think what we're going to get at here is the whole process is very front loaded where everything is figured out at the start and and the idea is not to change it through the program but right we know there's 15 year 20 year programs but the idea is not to change it and i think we all sort of realize that's the thing i've been writing on now is the lunacy of that about like how do we keep those requirements fresh and really the important thing i think getting to what eric kind of brought up is actually the solicitation what's in the contract what is the understanding of the of the contractor on what they're supposed to provide what's the understanding of the program yeah
0: yeah, that's a good that's a good point. F35 is probably the standout example because it's a very large program, the largest actually. So it, it uh, because it stands out, it usually takes a lot of lumps. <laughs> uh, some of it uh, rightfully so, some of it is just you know, maybe not. It just but it, it's definitely in the spotlight. Yeah. So the the fact that you know the F35 requirements were decided upon before they started bending metal, you know, that yeah. was 25, 30 years ago. Thousand. And now the F35 that we're getting is it meets the requirements that were written now they're like, well, it actually can't do some of the things we in the, the same ways that it needs to do because it needs more capabilities. And so now we have block four may, may or may not need a new engine, which is the whole thing that'll come out and hopefully the next two months, probably when the 24 budget hits. So we'll see uh, Lots. We could have a whole episode just about the F-35s engine. The whole point I think is that if you, if you haven't. If you haven't gotten the gist, there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of processes and a lot of staffing and a lot of signatures from a lot of people who may or may not be actual influential in that decision, but they inject themselves into the process, which then takes time. It takes, it takes 10 minutes to walk from one side of the Pentagon to the other, and it takes something like six to nine months to staff the paperwork to actually validate a requirement at the minimum. Um, that was the uh, the GAO report we're talking about. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens besides just staffing the paperwork for the requirement. That is just a sliver. And so you're talking about probably collectively, would you guys say something like for normal acquisitions? So not not a uh, an urgent operational need, not a middle tier acquisition, but a normal traditional acquisition program. That's probably two to four years of paperwork.
1: At least two. Yeah, that was studied in two years is the norm.
0: Yeah, and obviously the bigger, more complex the, the program and the more uncertainty and future-looking it is, and then you start injecting uh, multiple uh, technological risk factors. So if I want to build an aircraft, I want it to have a new engine that's never been developed. I want a radar that's never been developed. I want all of these things that don't exist yet. Now you're injecting just all kinds of programmatic risk, and so your cost, schedule, and performance kind of just go out the window pretty quickly. Yeah, Mike, here, I want to give you
2: a quick... Uh a quote here from a requirements officer a few years ago he said the project officer usually without detailed technical knowledge himself has to develop the required characteristics without a factual basis and put them into a document where did he get that characteristic you guessed it from a fertile and sometimes overactive imagination and so this is sometimes right and going back to what matt was talking about you basically have to define what it is you need before you have the technical knowledge or even get into it. Like to the point where you know the very least about your program, you're supposed to say, this is exactly what it is I'm going to get. Right. And sometimes that doesn't make the most sense, but
0: you know, that's the way the system goes. Yeah. It's interesting back to, back to the Pentagon wars. If you watch it, it actually has like engineers, part of the program management. And so they're actually going through like the military people are on the drafting table, like doing the design specifications for a vehicle, uh, which I think probably 40 to 50 years ago, the, the military got out of that business and we've kind of just left it to industry and we use the primes as the integrator to do the engineering due diligence. And then we just have programmatic oversight. So I think over time, the, the engineering expertise in acquisitions uh, and the operational expertise, just kind of a, the Venn diagram there. Those have been pulled apart, and so uh, some the Navy I think is a little bit better with operators and acquisitions working together and and kind of cross tour assignments than maybe the Air Force. But at the end of the day, you don't see uh, you see program managers, but you don't see like actual engineers that are doing that rigor, um, which is a little different than than DARPA. And so your DARPA PMs are traditionally the the lead engineers in the fields from which the programs are managing so they're engineers first and scientists first and then they learn how to be a program manager so it's a little bit backwards but they also have a lot of support to kind of shepherd them through that uh, their three or four year assignment there Uh, so real quick before we move on we we have to talk about the army just a little bit more besides the pentagon wars (laughs) the army handgun that's probably like the the one that that stands out to me Uh, so Yeah. They took 10 years and tens of millions of dollars of of, uh, research, and they have still had, had not figured out how to buy a handgun. Um, but someone wrote a requirement that was 350 pages long to define the handgun. Um, and then it met all kinds of political resistance and from industry because it had all kinds of ridiculous specifications, but there had not been any analysis on what caliber And the caliber kind of like defines everything else from there. And so there was no like lethality testing of like, what's the optimal caliber. And they just, the army just left it to industry to figure it out. Well, industry, thank God pushed back and said, no, like, this is a military unique thing you need to tell us. And then we can figure out which weapons we want to buy. And that was based on, Hey, we can go to the, we can go down to the, you know, the corner to the gun store and we can buy a pistol, buy buy a handgun. And it's, it's going to be like 80% solution. Like, why do we have to do this? It's uh, a so long story short, uh, even though the, the, the 9mm gets a lot of flack, the Army's stuck with the 9mm um, round for their new uh, pistol, not from uh, the lethality perspective, but for logistics, because they have, you know, billions of round, of 9mm rounds, uh, and so now if you switch the pistol over, you have a completely different logistical problem to try to figure out with a new type of round, so... They, uh, they, stepped, they kept with the 9 millimeter So they're fielding that now, finally. Uh, so they're in the field. But that was my, uh, that's my one example of like 10 years, tens of millions of dollars to study the problem, write a 350-page requirement, and then Congress, I uh, forgot there was someone in Congress who, who used, they printed it out and they kind of threw it down in a hearing and were, were slamming the Army, rightfully so in this case. But. Actually, it was at an acquisition class where the PO came and talked, uh,
1: the PO in charge of that came and talked to us and defended Defended that it took
0: we 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 just we just were (laughs) applying but they did of course you're going to you of course you're going to defend your baby (laughs) come on like there's no program manager there's no it's you know it's it's human dynamics no program manager is going to go you know what this program sucks and i you know burn it to the ground or kill this program please you know their their metrics of performance are based off of like moving that program through the process uh not if it should be uh moved through the process so uh okay so that's requirements what is an acquisition strategy and how does that fit into that historically
1: when five the dodi the DoD instruction for acquisition uh 5002 um basically there was one pathway for for the longest time although with the introduction of these new acquisition pathways middle tier software acquisition um and defense business systems are also getting more attention um there's actually different requirements docs that go with the different ACT strategies. So there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing where you sort of have to figure out is this general thing that I know the user wants? Maybe I don't have the doc, the requirement approved yet, but we know what they want, right? We've talked to them. Oftentimes, the program office is involved in the development of a requirement anyway. They're, they're involved in the requirement stock. Other decision point is will it stay at the service level or will it go to joint staff and have to get Jason's approval? which. Uh, if it's a JSIDS, uh thing where it has to go to the j the Joint Requirements Oversight Council, that's a four-star level with the vice chairman. Um, sometimes it can stay at the Joint Capabilities Board, which is a three-star level, the J-8. Um, but you have to make that decision. Real determining point about whether something has to go above the service is if there are joint equities. You can have joint information that needs to be shared, but if it's joint equity where there is a Navy interest to, you know, but it's an Air Force program, but there's real direct Navy interest, then they may designate that as this as joint equity. And then it has to get approved either at a three or four star level in joint staff. If it stays at the service level, it can get approved oftentimes through, um, by the three star or by the chief of the service, the the three star in charge of requirements
0: or the, the service chief. So it just depends. So there is a tie-in with the ACT strategy there. I think the uh, the two examples that uh, the, that kind of stick out to me, the F-22 Raptor, is probably like an Air Force centric platform, Um, even though it's a very very expensive platform. So it probably did go to the JROC, but for this purposes, let's say it was an, it's it's a service centric platform. And then you have the C-17 and the C-17 was developed. One of the key requirements is that it had to transport an M1 Abrams tank, the the takeoff and landing, the austere field requirements, the, the cargo capacity, how how wide the uh, loading and unloading was how far off the ground it was all that was driven off of a tank actually and so that's where i think if you if you built the plane without talking to the guy who had the tank uh, or were forced to uh, at least consider those the design into the design requirements uh, i think that that's what the j rock is really there for right
1: you're absolutely right mike that's a great example the bigger issue today is more interoperability in terms of communication so j6 you know, JITIC, the Joint Interoperability Test Command, you know, wants to make sure that things can talk to each other, whether that process is, you know, helpful, as helpful as, as it uh, is intended. Uh, you know, that's a, a debate on that. But since we're uh, talking
0: joint, we'll go off on a little tangent. There was a point in the 90s where if you slapped the J in front of every, every acronym, yeah. uh, it was pretty much guaranteed to get funding because it was all about being joint. Some of them are uh, are joint. So like JDAM, Joint Direct Attack Munition, that is, in fact, used by all the services. Um, then you have things like the, the joint programmable fuse, the JPF, that was the uh, FMU 152, What well, started as a joint program and then it failed to take in the considerations of the Navy uh, for shipboard use. And so the, the JPF, when it was designed, had a, uh, a long dwell timer with the battery so you could drop a weapon and it could sit on the ground for hours before going off. Well, that battery and that discharge time uh, is not certified for shipboard use, so the JPF never actually was ever used by the Navy on the carrier. Uh, so that's getting replaced now, you know, twenty twenty something years later. So just because it says J uh, doesn't mean it's actually joint. Yeah, the the other reason in the nineties was Black Hawk down, so which is
1: interesting in the concept of uh, some of the challenges we see with c two today, isn't it? I think it's I think it's kind of a interesting potential repeat of you know yeah we can talk better with each other that there's still a lot of disconnects there so
0: jad c2 is an interest is going to be very interesting um because if you're the air force you go i've got uh, dozens potentially dozens of things at any given time that i need to be on a on a shared network to share information and there's some latency requirements and things like that that all come into factor and then you get to the army they're like well i've got you know tens of thousands of nodes that all need the information like well that's a completely different problem to solve from an engineering perspective like how do you design a network that can that can share the right information with the right person at the right time that's actionable and that that is the wicked problem it's not just hey just you can all talk together it's like no, no no the in use the scale of having to do it and it has to be resilient so that's that is a wicked problem. I'm glad I'm not in charge of that uh, <laughs> that program. Uh, I know, and I know, uh, I forgot who's who got appointed recently, but I think the Secretary of the Air Force said that is the uh, that is the hardest acquisition job I gave everyone. I just gave it to that guy. Good luck,
1: Dave <laughs> Martell. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The Army
2: definitely has the harder. They they had that program Win T that was supposed to do a lot of that networking, and they've been doing that since the '80s. And they actually canceled that. And I think we'll talk a little bit about how that rolled into a new kind of army program, IVAS, which actually did use these new acquisition authorities. But kind of going back to this acquisition stool, right? Or like leg of the stool, um, you know, it takes, you know, the whole point is to get to an acquisition decision memorandum, right? And so the acquisition strategy is one of these, there's a lot of these processes. Like when you go through like a big major capability thing, there's like 48 or something kind of documents and it can take two years to get to that acquisition decision memorandum and there's all sorts of things right like the life cycle sustainment plan and the cost estimates and then you have the acquisition strategies one of them um but that's one that's actually kind of statutorily required and you know i think just when you go through all of that the whole point is just you have to do line up all these documents to say what's the cost what's the schedule what are you going to do how are you going to support it in the future who what's the staffing and the billets and, and all of that kind of stuff and it's just a lot to think about but you also, again, I'm gonna bring it back up you have to do all this documentation while it's still a paper plan, right? Because most of the time, and actually since 2009 the Weapon Systems Acquisition Reform Act basically brought this stuff forward. So you have to get it done before Milestone A uh, which is like the the traditional way but Milestone A is before you even prototype. So before you actually have something that even looks operational-ish Um, when it's still like a science experiment, you have to put all this stuff together and get it all approved at these very high levels. And so there's some delegation that's happened and there's some new acquisition authorities that have happened to allow this to speed up. And we're going to talk about that. But again, two years, 48 documents and like 50 offices. There is a great report where they just like listed all the air force, um, offices that you have to go through to just like get one of these things approved. And it's everybody and their mother, you know? And even one of those offices, you have multiple branches in that office that need to sign off. So it's just this consensus-based decision process. No one's in charge, but everyone's in charge.
1: Bill, well, the real uh, problem that I have with the way that they've been done over the last 10 years is that when a program manager comes into that meeting to give that briefing, they're expected to have every single issue ironed out at the table. Like this is one of my gripes. And what that means is that you have to go satisfy each of those offices. And get them completely on board where they are like not going to bring up any objections not going to bring up any kind of issues and i've always thought that like and i've given some I've had to do a couple milestone b briefings and like and i always hated that because i'm like it basically there's no discussion at those other than what the decision authority what questions they might have but there's no real dialogue around the table other than is everybody good and it so it becomes like a consensus decision rather than a real dialogue like what you might have in a commercial company where a CEO is about to make a you know really important decision. And they're like, he's not just asking his VPs, are you good? You know, there's a critique, there's a detailed thing. And so there's some of that, I don't wanna say there's none of it, but it is really this weird consensus kind of decision-making, which is not healthy in my opinion for, for the most part, but that's mostly what you see.
2: The way over said it was, the guy at the top who has to make the decision doesn't actually know what is right or what is wrong. And therefore he just wants everyone to be on board and study it to death because if someone comes ask him like this thing didn't work it's your fault and he can say no i got i did the right thing i got everyone to agree and look how much paper there is so he is now insulated from from accountability again it's like how do we kind of shirk accountability to a degree by kind of like obfuscating that over time and over people
0: just to put a point on this all this paperwork doesn't exist because people like to do paperwork uh there's a there's a cultural thing. There's a, there's human dynamics in play. And then there's this other thing because outside of the five-sided puzzle palace, uh, across the river, there is a funny white building with a dome on top. And that is a completely different circus. And in that circus, uh, over there is called oversight. And so having, uh, quote, validated your requirement and conducted this due diligence to stand up. To oversight because at the end of the day you have to ask those people in that funny building with the dome on top for the money and then they have to approve it and so there's uh, early to need is probably my favorite saying which is like no and that's that's the thank you for your interest in national security <laughs> right so I want I want to buy this thing and and Congress just writes that's early to need which means you're not getting it uh, late to need means that you didn't ask for it. Congress said you need it and they're going to give it to you anyways. And so suck it up. And then there's a few other funny, uh, colloquialisms that go in there, but, <laughs> but back to your point about the the process, you know, if you, that's the, the, that would be like Apple going like, Hey, uh, I want to form a team to figure out what the iPhone 27 is going to look like. And I want like detailed specifications for what it's going to look like. Like, well, there's obviously like a dozen technologies that we haven't even thought of existing that will be in this thing. Like, yeah, yeah, I know, but just, just, you know, use your imagination and then go talk to some people and we'll just, you know, we'll leave a little space in there and we'll figure it out. And then you get to like, well, how much, well, how much space should we leave? Like, well, I don't know. What's the size, weight and power can, can you know, requirements like, well, I don't know if it doesn't exist yet. So you get in this like circular logic, which is, you know, some of the issues that we have with like uh, follow-on modernization for programs that, that take forever to field Eric, back to you. Once we figure out that we we need to buy something, so we have the requirement and we figure out what what we need to buy, before we figure out how to go buy it, we have to figure out how much should it cost. Right? So I mean you go to the you go to like Verizon or wherever you get your phones and you walk in, and you go, This is the price of an iPhone. You can see it. Sometimes it's on sale, sometimes it's not, and you know it's this much money. And then you make a a decision based on like the value and your need, like, do I need a phone right now? Or can I wait? How old is my phone I have now? Can I wait? Did my phone just, you know, die and I'm like on the way to a meeting, I need a phone right now. Well, now you're at the mercy of whatever the price is, right? So that's not how it really works in the Pentagon though. Uh, so, So Eric, will you tell us a little bit about how we determine how much to pay for something?
2: Yeah, well, you know, there's so many parts of this system, right? Because like right when you get your requirement then you kind of are supposed to do this analysis of alternatives. So you're supposed to say, well, here's all the ways I could go accomplish this. You know, you have an end, you have a, some kind of requirement, but there's multiple solutions to go get it. Maybe it's not an iPhone. Maybe it's like um, a tin can with some string, right? And maybe that costs less. So you look at all the different ways and what those general costs are, and then you're supposed to pick the best one, right? The most cost effective one, the one that's the best cost benefit and then you go into a more detailed cost estimate and this all kind of happens before the acquisition strategy so you don't even really know what it is you want but you're supposed to know what the costs and the actual outputs are and then you go into this thing you have like a cost analysis requirements document and then you need to do you know all these cost estimates at the program level at the service level and then at the osd level especially if it's an acat 2 or in some cases like a or an acat 1 so like the larger programs and So you do so all what do ACAT co- stand for? Acquisition categories. So one, two, and three. Um, the ones are the biggest, the twos are the middles, and the threes are the smaller ones. And usually the threes can kind of get away with a lot of stuff and they go fast. But you're supposed to do this cost estimate. And so it's, again, it, we keep talking about it. It's like you're putting the cart before the horse. You have to know things before it's possible to know them. Or what we'll more likely do is just say, well, you want a new aircraft. It cost me this much to do an F-22, and this much to do an F-35, and here are their weights. And so you want an aircraft that's 30% more heavy, so this is what it's going to cost, based on what we did in the past. Oh, you, you think you're going to use new technology? I heard that one before. Nope, <laughs> this is your cost, because you screwed up in the, in the past, you're going to screw up in the future, and that's just what it's going to be. And so usually, it's just like this weird thing in cost estimation, like we can't imagine the future, so we have to use the past as the basis to, to estimate the future. And that's why a lot of the programs just look to be like incremental follow-ons of what we've already done because you only have costs for things you've already done. If it's
0: something brand new, you don't know how to cost it. Okay, so if we get through all of that, so now here we are four years into the process of, of paperwork uh, to, to buy something. Now we have to go build a budget to figure out the process to buy it. So that's called the PBBE, the uh, Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution. All that stuff that we've navigated up to this point is about uh, the FAR, which is the Federal Acquisition Regulations. It's about 2300 pages of requirements and staffing processes and making sure you can get all the way to the point that now I'm going to build it into the budget. And so this budget that goes to Congress. If you've never had the uh, the privilege of, of opening a J book, they're called justification books. Uh, there's uh, the budget is broken into these line items, and there's about uh, there's about a thousand line items in the in an annual budget, if I remember right. Maybe a little bit more. Climbs much more. Year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> much more. Yeah, 1,700. So thousands. Yeah, how many's in there?
1: About 1,700 investment line items, but if you count O and M, it's more like 2,000. Yeah, O&M is interesting, the operations and
2: maintenance, because those line items are like over $200 million on average. And you can, they have a lot more flexibility in what they do and how you can move money between them. Whereas when you do research and development or procurement, uh, those are very narrowly stovepiped. Yeah, at 1700, as Matt said, they're about $30 million on average. And it's very hard to move that money in between. So basically, you had to predict what you got to do, and then you can do it. Imagine like if you had to know three years in advance that you're going to move a squadron over to Kadena or something like that like it would just be ridiculous you couldn't you couldn't like operate your military forces that way so luckily the idea was with pbbe that you would program operations and maintenance it was just it just proved too difficult to ever do it so that part of the budget kind of and military personnel that kind of stayed flexible but in terms of actually buying technologies and buying these systems
0: very very rigid As we're recording this, the fiscal year 23 uh, appropriations, the money to execute uh, the plan uh, was just signed into law. And we're about uh, three months or two months into fiscal year 2023. In two months, the fiscal year 2024 budget will go uh, to to the Hill. Uh, So that'll become public. And the 2025 budget, is already being created so we're at the end of 2022 and we're already thinking 2025 programming this process had a time and a place uh many many years ago Uh, i want to say it's probably the early 60s mid 60s and i blame ford motor company you know if you're a chevy guy you'd blame ford uh, but but there is a tie between Ford Ford Motor Company and the Pentagon and how we ended up with this ridiculous process. So, Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
2: I mean, it was like a 30-year kind of thing to get the PBB into the system, and it started really in the 1960s, as you said, Ford. So, Robert McNamara, he was a comptroller. He, he became comptroller at Ford and then eventually became president for less than a year before he got tapped to come over the, to the Department of Defense as secretary. And... He kind of brought the system that he had from uh ford they actually called these guys whiz kids over at ford and then they brought in these like you know 20 and 30 year olds into the pentagon to kind of tell the services basically what one of the guys said alan enthoven who is a 30 year old when he became the director for systems analysis basically the number three guy he was like no longer do we need military judgment uh to make weapon systems choices all I needed was what I learned in my sophomore year of economics class to optimize the portfolio of, this, of the Department of Defense. So the hubris of these guys thinking that, you know, some economists, comptrollers, and accountants could, you know, take over the planning and budgeting and, and the entire resourcing of the Department of Defense, including weapons choice. Uh, but there was a time and place potentially for that. Maybe there needed to be kind of some cost controls because budgets were really high. There was a lot of cost growth in the 1950s, but there was also a lot of innovation. And so this process really came in to say, hey, we need to just, instead of just starting these new programs and getting them into the field really fast and then figuring it out on the fly, let's just stop all of that and go through this process of set up the requirements and then analyze those requirements and then very slowly come to do all the things that we just talked about. That system was very much faster in the 40s and 50s. You couldn't have won World War II with that system that we have today, right? But it was during the Cold War, there was this emphasis on cost control. And so the department kind of came to run on cost and on these like program elements, but the system wasn't as rigid at the time. There were still people who with like vision and with you know managerial talent and engineering talent that were still getting programs through through the 1960s and it wasn't until the 70s and 80s that this whole system really started to solidify and really become as tight and rigid um as it is today budgets were much bigger um or more flexible back in those back in those days go back to the iphone if you told steve jobs like hey man you're gonna you're gonna have to ask motorola um don't like hey i want to build this iphone but it might supplant that flip phone. Can I do it? And then Motorola says, no, <laughs> you know, like so the right. iPhone never comes. That's right. And so it's it's a complex and, and crazy kind of system that, that that the department has. It looked a little bit like what the Fords and the GMs were doing at the time, but Ford and GM got outcompeted competed by Japan, which started using lean manufacturing and new types of agile techniques. And now these systems, Ford used to have a billion dollar budgeting system um, even as late as the 90s, I don't think they have that anymore, right? If they want to stay competitive, but the department still uses this industrial era kind of process where they think they can predict and control uh, things as opposed to delegate uh, decisions to people who know best and allow them to kind of, you know, with the entrepreneurial mindset, build things, see if they work, get them into the field and incrementally move in that way.
0: Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, like the rise of of uh, McNamara and Ford was a direct result of the Ford Edsel. And so that almost like bankrupted the company in the like like 5860 timeframe. If this was an acquisitions program, it was a complete failure of requirements, right? So he, he comes in and, and and through the comptroller process, like where's all our dollars going? Because we are, we are deep in the red. And so he kind of helped save Ford from just the financial diligence. And I think then that was brought over into the Pentagon and then oversight budget line items, like I said, there's about 2000 line items in the budget. And those line items are very, very important because here's where Congress gets involved and and now they can go and put their hands on it and go, you know, take a couple hundred million dollars out of this line item and put it in this other line item and to start moving things around and that actually injects more chaos than you think uh through through the auspices of oversight uh oversight is great it's it's needed but sometimes when you you know you you see a budget go over there and and these are people who who have there's some people who have full-time jobs that do it but very very few Uh, most people just have a a political interest in seeing something happen or something changed to uh for their cause and that ends up creating ripple effects throughout multiple years of, of, of money management in, in these programs. And then you have what's called uh, the NDAA, which uh, Eric, you had a really good post about this. Um, this year's NDAA is, was 4,400 pages long. The table of contents in this year's NDAA is longer than the entire NDAA up through the 70s. Just the table of contents. And so the first one, uh, the first NDA was one page in 1962, if I remember right. And then even in the mid eighties, the cold war. So the height of like Reagan era defense spending, you know, it was the NDA was only a hundred or 200 pages and we hit a thousand pages in 2020 and now it's in just a few years, it's four times that, and that is the authorization act. So you can do this. You can't do that. It's not really money, but it's authorizing the appropriation of money, but there's a lot of restrictions. Like I, you can divest uh, a couple of A-10s, You cannot divest any F 22 Raptors. This is the legislation that it's in. And when that thing came out, I, I want to say there was like 30 hours or something, but it wasn't released to the members of Congress till so they had to vote on it. Like, who the hell is going to go read 4,000 pages of this document to then cast a vote? And so they, they are relying on people to just say, vote for it, or don't vote. Or we're just the one thing that I really care about, and I'm not going to read the rest of it. And so that's, uh, you know, if you want to call that oversight still, there's you know, debatable. But that's... Uh... The Appropriations Act are also also rather large and, and have grown over time.
1: Um, but yeah. just to put a, just put one little, one, one quick uh, context on the PBB process, it was just sort of beat on the PMs or beat on this other agency that you just need to do more documentation or you need to do more more rigor, but almost ignoring the, the money piece of it and how that impacts the culture, impacts the X strategies and, and the execution, um, and then same with requirements. So I think just to bring it full circle with what MTA and some of these alternative pathways did they did not solve the PBE process. They did bring some flexibilities and some some things to make uh make it a little bit easier to get into a program, and so there's real benefits there. But the PBE process was inherently not solved, and I would argue the requirements process was still not solved, even though it was it got a little bit of action. So if you so if you think of it like a speedometer, like acquisition reform has gotten like full on, requirements got a little bit of work.
0: The PBE is still backwards started from. That is a fan-freaking-tastic transition into MTAs. So let's talk about MTAs. The MTAs Middle Tier of Acquisition, or as in the op-ed that you uh, you wrote with some of your uh, your teammates over at MITRE in Defense One, uh, get to know the middle tier of awesome uh, acquisition. So, <laughs> so the first question I have is is what, <laughs> that's the title of it. <laughs> I didn't write it. You did. Or maybe the editor wrote it. I don't know. No, no that's right. Okay. Uh, okay. Are you claiming it? Did you write the title?
1: No, that would be a Dan Ward-ism. Uh, only Dan. Can, okay. Uh, I call it that stuff. Okay.
0: So MTAs. Uh, Matt, what is an MTA?
1: It's a new pathway. It was added to the old traditional way of doing things that we talked about, with like two years of an AOA and all those kinds of things. It essentially pushed all of that out and said, if you have something, if you have a good idea and you wanna get started with something and and build that into um, an operational prototype or something that can be transitioned to another pathway, to the more traditional pathway for long-term procurement, let's say, um, then this is another acquisition path that you can use. So a lot, essentially a PM could come and instead of going back to the big binder of all the things, the checklist items that they needed, they could actually start more clean sheet and say, here's what I need to be successful. that that's essentially what it is it's a new pathway that allows you to do that and then you know the big key of it is that by being exempted and by having those things you can get started faster um and you can you can learn and hopefully feel something faster and there was a five-year limit that said you know you need to feel something within five years or transition to another pathway within those five years so that was
0: that was the key okay so so to read it back to you for uh Again, I'm the LIMFAC in this conversation. So an MTA, as I understand it, basically does, uh, does two things. It is to rapidly develop a prototype to demo a new capability and or rapidly field something using proven technology that requires minimal development. And both of those have within five-year scopes. So I could rapidly prototype within five years, where I can rapidly uh, acquire, so go into production for for a period of five years, then you have to transition to something else. Does that, uh, read that back right?
1: Yeah, that's right. There is a rapid prototype subpath and a rapid fielding subpath. There was a lot of things that had to happen for a program to start. It was very hard to, to say, I just wanna go prototype some stuff, see if it works. There's some commercial stuff, maybe there's some stuff coming out of the lab. Very hard to do that because you had to get, spend these years to build up to a program. And so the idea was that, well, you know, sometimes there are things out there that could be useful for the warfighter, um, or that could be prototyped, experimented with. And uh, so they created the middle tier of acquisition pathway. John McCain was a big supporter of it. Bill Greenwald wrote most of the language. Um, that, that passed and came over, and essentially it said, you're you're exempt from JSITs, the requirements process. You you're exempt from all these you know documentation requirements. You know, tailoring what you need. So. So that was the guidance. it came over to the department. I was part of the team that wrote the initial policy and it was a big debate about what should be required, but ultimately it was give the PM, the program manager, a clean sheet of paper and say, what documents do you think are relevant for this piece? What level of maturity do they need to be at at the start versus being refined throughout the throughout the effort? Um, you know, What kind of requirements do you need to get started? Um, and a lot of it was just not that idea as we just talked about, of having
0: everything figured out at the beginning. So, the next question for uh, the knuckle draggers like me is what is it in the middle of? It's called the middle tier. So, you know, what what's on, uh, you know, above and below it? Urgent. Think... Yeah, urgent
2: and the traditional. Well, there's a, it's also, yeah, so you got the traditional, the major capability, the biggest things, but there's also ACAT one, two, three of that traditional too. So, actually, within middle tier, there's kind of like three tiers of middle tier itself which is kind of funny right so you have the largest that are like the DAPs, which actually do require written approval from um the undersecretary of defense of ans acquisition and sustainment so in the osd level very high then you have major systems too so ones that are greater than 115 million dollars of rdt and e that's 1990 so it's more like you know 300 million um of R D C and
0: uh isn't the m and DAP major though
2: yeah so it's confusing because there's major systems and then there's major defense acquisition programs which are even higher than that <laughs> you know so so they all have like these like thresholds of like what the dollar values are but yeah the mdap is the biggest then you have major systems which is like still big but not like super huge you know it's like a billion dollar kind of like fielding program and then you have the the smaller um those that are not major systems And in order to get through that, all you just need is the decision authority to say, let's go ahead. But still with all of these levels, you still have like a time crunch to get at least some of the documentation um, in there. So you have two years to basically get your cost estimate, your acquisition strategy, your contracting strategy, and all that other kind of stuff as well. But at least you can start it faster.
0: All right. So let's zoom out just a little bit. So we have rapid prototyping and we have rapid fielding and Eric, you had a, you had a post in your blog uh, several months ago, I think it was in the summer, uh, you had about a hundred programs that were documented throughout the entire Pentagon that were using, uh, MTAs and it was an 80, 20 split. So 80% were prototyping 20% were fielding of those about 102 programs. That kind of a checks with, with what I've seen is the addiction to demos and prototypes. Uh, but lack of decisions and long term commitments uh, for things like that, uh, and I say that because uh, Matt, you recently posted something, and as of uh, like thirty days ago, as of what we're recording right now, uh, there's now 131 programs that are using MTAs, and it's a 60 40 split, so 60 percent prototyping, 40 percent fielding. So, am my you know, as a layman's guy, you know, I, I see that, and I, I think that that's a good sign that not only are the number of MTAs going up, but the proportion of fielding versus prototyping is as well. And there's a really funny quote from uh, John Hyten when he was the vice, the vice chair of the joint chiefs, when uh, he was talking with uh, Mike Brown from uh, the defense uh, innovation unit, thinking out loud, he goes, enough prototyping already. Like, how do we just buy things at scale? And we have these mountains of prototypes that are like, you know, sitting in the corner, it's like all over the government uh, because we love to, to give some money and they win a little contract to go do something, go away for a couple of years, do your thing. Without having the understanding of all of the stuff that we've been talking about, those, you know, the 50 the something different offices you have to coordinate and how do I build it into a, a budget line item? And how do I get buy-in on the hill? And, you know, how do I get all these people to sign off on this thing? it's just it's so hard to do something disruptive my uh my bucket's getting full my brain bucket so, uh, so <laughs> this has been a great conversation let's so let's go back to mtas and let's talk some examples uh so first up uh let's talk about the b-52 uh, re-engine <laughs> as major general uh, partridge aka kelsey grammar uh, said in the movie if the u.s army acted on the advice of every tom dick and harry who had an opinion on these matters we'd wind up with a bunch of B-52s powered by outboard motors. (laughs) So I couldn't help but think of that as we're like, oh. So let's talk about the re-engining of the B-52. It's called the the SERP. Uh, That's a a soft C. It's Commercial Engine Replacement Program. And for those who are are, uh, unaware, the B-52 has eight ancient engines, uh, TF-33s. And this is a program to replace eight engines with eight new engines that are more fuel efficient uh, off of a uh, a commercial derivative uh, engine that already exists. Uh, So it's supposed to give uh, more fuel efficiency and uh, better power generation and then some digital engine controls and some new cockpit displays uh, to manage those engines. Uh, Rolls-Royce won the contract. Boeing is the integrator for the platform. Um, And then the timeline for this is uh, two B-52s are supposed to have uh, all of their engines outfitted and ready for testing by 2025. Uh, it will hit the fleet in 2028. The first aircraft that will be operational. And then by 2035, according to the plan, all 76 B-52s will have these new engines and all will be well in the world, uh, to do that, uh, they're using, uh, MTA for rapid prototyping, as I understand it, not production. And this is where I guess I'd like to hear from you guys. I think that's a little weird because, uh, the, the air force already awarded Rolls-Royce a $2.6 billion contract to buy 650 (laughs) engines for all the entire fleet. And so it's interesting to me that that's a, it's a rapid prototyping, but it's not a rapid prototyping and production. It's just a, so maybe I'm reading that wrong.
1: Well, there there's always going to be two phases to b52 serp even when the the first x strategy was always like two phases um and first it was to kind of get the virtual aspect uh worked out how those engines would integrate um and and also like you said there's there's actually a lot more to serp than the engines it's really redesigning the entire uh sort of interface inside of the aircraft um, you know the wings are completely modified the airframe there's mechanical stuff it's it's kind of a almost a new airplane in some ways. Um, But yeah, so part of it was to virtually prototype all of that and then to make sure that those models that everything worked right. So just like F-1, um, I'm a big fan of F-1, they designed their entire car digitally, um, put all of the, the nuanced aerodynamic stuff. They test that out through a million iterations to say, okay, what's the likelihood that this will meet this performance spec? So the Air Force did something very similar. And so I really like it in that application because digital engineering has to be the way of the future for, for how we design things. So I, I do love that B52 did that. Um, but they did they did have to start working those agreements with Rolls-Royce to get that that vendor online because part of it is also tapping into that logistics supply chain. So that's gonna be one of the huge benefits for B52 is that it's uh,
0: they're gonna have commercial availability of commercial engines um, and, and the, the benefits that come with it so one of the issues i think that that i read about this why i wanted to bring this one up is you know we're doing rapid prototyping rolls-royce is the engine um, provider they have come out with the virtual digital prototyping effort is a really good quote about how they're going to basically have the engineering pretty much locked down before they even touch the aircraft without any physical modifications so they can develop the most cost efficient solution this is the quote uh, this has allowed us to develop the most cost-efficient solution while reducing the time from concept to production. Uh, that was the that was a quote from about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, that said, uh, it's, that program is not going too well, as I understand it. Not that it's Rolls-Royce's fault, and this is the, the other half of the equation. So uh, there is a 50% cost increase from the 2017 estimate it's, and all of that has to do with the integration of the engine onto the airframe. So it's not the engine, it's the airframe, uh, which is obviously built in the 1960s and is not using digital engineering. And so there's a whole bunch of, uh, as I understand it from uh, the hearings, there's a bunch of issues with getting these new engines, which the, the cowlings and the they're called the struts, which are the pylons that actually hold the engines to the airframe. Uh, there's a ton of issues with the struts, which are digitally engineered, to fit onto the legacy um, wing, which is a Boeing product. And I and I heard that it was actually going to lose its MTA status based on the cost increases. And so I don't know if you guys have heard anything about that.
2: One of the the consternations is that I think the, the 50% increase was actually from like an earlier cost estimate before they went through their milestone development decision. And so it didn't have all this extra stuff, right? Like Matt already brought up a lot of that stuff. You mm-hmm. need to change the struts environmental controls, electrical loads, cybersecurity, all this kind of stuff kind of was sneaking in as well. Like just to go back to the, a little bit of the history, right? They kind of were lining this up as a regular program. And then uh, basically Will Roper, who's kind of gung-ho in the Air Force when he was the acquisition executive was like, hey, let's push this into an MTA, right? And so in September, 2018, it was quickly converted into an MTA. And the program manager said, well, this is going to save us like three and a half years of all this documentation. We can kind of just get it underway, which is really great. I remember that. Uh, Yeah, You could imagine, right, they're going to do the MTA rapid prototyping. And the idea was, we're just going to do like a partial test of a couple aircraft engines and and aircraft um, in that five-year time because you have to do it in five years. Uh, But then they could have cycled into a rapid fielding, right? Um, and used an MTA for rapid fielding to actually get those engines onto the aircraft at scale. Uh, but the the program manager actually they requested to transition to a major capability, so to get out of the MTA, um, and that's actually going to happen in the twenty twenty three timeframe. Uh, so yeah, they could have gone into rapid fielding, but they didn't. Um, is that something bad about MTA? Is that something bad about the program? I'm not. I'm not really clued in into what what's going on there but they are kind of running it very similar to a normal program right because boeing is doing all this regular kind of con even they they started with an other transaction they're doing like earned value management they're doing all this they have a test and evaluation master plan a cdd it's looking a lot more like a regular program and it's not really clear how much that has to do with mta as opposed to how much you know Boeing or the program office itself was
0: just kind of more accustomed to the traditional ways of doing things. We have lost Matt uh, because his battery died on his phone. We'll continue without him. He's in our hearts and, and prayers. <laughs> let's, talk, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the Army. Let's talk about IVAS. You mentioned it a couple times. Uh, IVAS, which is the Integrated Visual Augmentation System. Um, this is a augmented reality headset made by Microsoft for the Army. And it's basically a mil-spec version of their HoloLens 2 headsets, sort of. The difference is they cost $30,000 a piece, roughly, um, which adds up to a very, very big contract. Uh, uh, It's like $22 billion. And right now, uh, we are on uh, multiple years of prototyping. Version four of this made and these this is an MTA so this will make sense in a minute uh, version four is the one that made headlines recently with quote physical ailments people are getting dizzy from uh, wearing them in the field um, now they're uh, they're in version 5 negotiations right now uh, but the army has come out actually just in the past day and said hey we're in negotiations for a version 5 of this but we still plan the field version 4 in 2023. And it sounds like they're basically committed to the five to ten thousand units that they have uh, agreed to in that prototyping phase, because they've kind of put the money to commit it to buying it. Um, and I think that's probably just uh, to help Microsoft out for the the amount of time and money and effort they're putting into this. Uh, but but my takeaway from from this program was that this actually sounds about right. So it's it's gotten some flack about you know it's a you know this much twenty two billion dollar program from headsets that don't work. Like, well it's a rapid prototyping program it's an mta uh, for the prototyping side of it they're indeed rapidly prototyping they're on version five of it now and, and they're iterating on the design they're giving it to operators in the field they're taking the feedback to me this sounds like what this is what you would use an mta for is that is that check
2: yeah i I actually believe so, and I think a lot of, there was a lot of praise coming from leadership and other folks as well, because there were stories, right, like of software developers, they would go out into the field with the soldiers, and they would recode based on feedback and get that done within a couple days or the next day, rather than having to go through a change order and getting a new funding line and doing all this kind of stuff, right? So they were really focused on the soldiers themselves and having these touch points, basically basically Every few months, and they would have new software iterations every month. So you could imagine you're learning through this process. You can't like spec a very tight requirement right up front and say you you know exactly what you're gonna do. Um, they were kind of like you know figuring it out along the way. They would just like through these so- soldier touch points, they would be like, oh well, it turns out like the battery pack, the puck on your on your chest, it doesn't really allow you to army crawl. So we need to kind of fix that or. You know the way that the 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 visual display was um you couldn't actually put the gun up next to your your your, uh your head so it was like well we need to fix that so there's all these things you probably couldn't have figured that out or thought about it ahead of time it's probably just faster to you know microsoft brought a lot of technology and a lot of investment it's already pretty high trl let's just you know put it on soldiers see what's needed and keep iterating and going fast
0: Turns out you can't just take a Hololens and, and spray paint it with camouflage and call it good. It's a little more involved than in that. The
2: military is much different than some kind of kid sitting in a basement, you know, just using it for a couple hours, right? There's a lot more yeah, going exactly. on to it, uh, and so, and so, yeah, that's that's some of the issue there. They still have that big contract, but whether they're going to be able to obligate all that money and get it fielded. You know, potentially not every soldier needs to have it, right? Maybe one
0: guy in a platoon might need it. You know, maybe not everybody needs to be run. All right. So that was IVAS. That was one of the examples that we we're talking about. And that was using an MTA to do rapid prototyping. We couldn't have an episode without talking about fighter jets. So the next, uh, the next example we have is the F-15EX. And so this is an example of an MTA for rapid fielding, not prototyping. And it's one of about uh, 25 programs in the entire Pentagon that is a rapid fielding using MTA authorities, if uh, if I have those numbers right. So this is a $9 billion program to buy maybe 144 uh, F-15 EXs, we'll see. Uh, That's the actual stated requirement. uh, To partially replace 232 F-15 Cs and Ds It's not a one-for-one because F-35s are going to some of those F-15C units. What's really cool about this program is that it's using authority to rapidly field something that is viable today. So the F-15EX uh, is basically 95% the same as the F-15SA and the F-15QA models. So it has a bunch of uh, upgrades that are really cool. Uh, the things that are different about it it's got some different software some different avionics and some some fiber to connect some uh, avionics to do some things uh, but other than that it's pretty much the same as those aircraft so the cool thing about the story is that this the mta for rapidly buying these airplanes basically leverages five billion dollars of developmental costs that have been paid by saudi arabia qatar uh, singapore to some extent and south korea this is starting as an mta to back to the very beginning where matt was talking about uh, for for production but it's going to convert into a traditional program Um, and so that's the that's a a pretty a good news story there's politics about buying it not buying it and the air force you know not wanting it and getting it forced on by osd we can have a whole episode just about the politics of that platform um, and then we have a whole other episode about the, the ridiculous debate about F-35 versus F-15EX. I think it's just hilarious. Uh, but uh, I think it's a great example of an MTA for rapidly fielding. I agree with you. And you can check out our podcast a couple of years ago where we talked
2: about that, right? You gave your opinions on F-15 versus F-35. But for the MTA part, because Boeing had such you know, high technology readiness level kind of stuff here from previous developments, had a lot of irad they were able to kind of get it underway really fast so the mta i think was perfect and then they got to first flight there in february 21 um, and then they delivered the aircraft in march so they delivered the aircraft the first uh, test aircraft for the ex 18 months after the mta start
0: usually that would take five years more than that maybe right i worked in the pentagon at the time when all this was going on so we did with the rapid fielding requirements document the rfrd OSD Cape is how the money got moved. So that money, uh, so one of the things with MTAs, is it's it's repurposing existing funds within the budget cycle, and so OSD uh, actually took money that were the which was going to the same company. It was going to take money that was going to go to Boeing anyways to buy Super Hornets for the Navy, and gave them to the Air Force to buy F-15EXs. So it was still the money was still going to go to Boeing. <laughs> It was just a matter of what airplanes they were going to buy from Boeing. And so that was the repurposing of money. So it was not very political uh, from that point of view because Boeing was still going to get the money. And so obviously there's no, no hard work with that. There was a whole Lockheed versus Boeing on the Hill. Uh, But that's the first part. The other part of it, which, which some people don't realize this. And so again, it's rapid fielding and you're leveraging this developmental cost from a a active production line. Those first two F-15 EXs, Eric, that you mentioned, are actually Qatari jets that had, that were already being built and they added the US stuff in them. And so if you look at EX-1 and EX-2, the only, as of this recording, the only two F-15 EXs that are possessed by the Air Force, they actually have the electronic warfare um, uh, modules, the bumps uh, on the fuselage for the system that Qatar is supposed to get. Uh, but there's nothing in them because we didn't put that system in the EX. We have a U.S. system that's a different form factor. So we have the Qatari bumps for the electronic warfare, but the actual U.S. electronic warfare instead. The, the one the one other
1: thing that I liked about the F-15 EX, um, I, you kind of hit on a bike was the, um, you know, the manufacturing kind of processes, right? It, it's roughly the same aircraft, but has some modifications for, for the U.S. piece. But using MTA rapid fielding as almost a quasi-LRIP, which in the old pathway, the low rate initial production, um, would mm-hmm. have been a very discrete phase of a program that had completed development. And then you would, you would do an LRIP phase to basically do your operational testing before going into full rate production. And I really like the idea of, you know, if you prototype something with the MTA rapid prototype phase, uh, it pans out, it looks good. Um, and you're ready to go into production, use MCA rapid, rapid fielding to get that algorithm phase, work out any of the kinks in the manufacturing processes or, you know, different uh, deficiencies that you, you identify as part of early tests. Work that all out before you go into the MCA pathway, into the major capability pathway, because then you, you, you know what you have. And so you go in, then you can set your baseline because MCA programs don't have a baseline. That's the other piece of it. Um, but when MCA, when you transition, you do have to set a baseline you do have to say this is these are the costs of the aircraft i'm going to set this and if i go over i'm going to have to tell congress about it so i really like it for that and i think f15 ex is sort of proving that out as
0: how, how well that works for that first squadron of jets Yeah, that's a good point uh since we're talking about fighters the other two programs um just to, worth mentioning that have used mtas is the uh f-22 TACLink link uh or TACMan. so it's the LINK-16 mandates. So or are putting LINK-16 on the F-22. That is the MTA for rapid prototyping, or it started out as. And then the other one, which is the one that you can actually see if you're lucky enough to see a F-22 flying around with these pods on the wings, is what's called F-22 sensor enhancement. This is an MTA for rapidly prototyping ERST pods, so infrared search and track to put on the F-22. So those are uh, two other noteworthy fighter uh, MTAs. Uh, all right, last last program, and I want to sketch a story from each of you. Uh, let's talk about Arrow, the AGM-183 Alpha, air-launched responsive weapon, which is a very boring way to describe a 20-foot-long, 7,000-pound air-launched hypersonic missile, <laughs> which is what it is. Uh, what's noteworthy about this program, which is why I saved it for last, is uh, all the examples we talked about with MTAs They are they were either a rapid prototype or a rapid production. The AGM 183, the Arrow is an MTA for both. It's one of the few programs that's a rapid prototype and rapid fielding. Uh, It's made the news last year for having uh, three spectacular failures in a row. And then it's made the news, uh, well, 2020, that was 2021 in 2022, it's made the news for having three successful test uh, test shots in a row. And the last one, which happened about a month ago, as, as of this recording was, the first successful test of a all up round. So it's a production like form fit function. And it was a complete test from employment to impact. And so. What I think was cool about this is number one, you're, it's one of the few programs I can think of that it's using both authorities in the MTA, and it's really following the uh, the fail faster. So whether it's SpaceX blowing up rockets, uh, they yeah they had a lot of failures, but that that's kind of the point is you you have a failure. They have what's called a failure review board, which is a whole another uh, administrative process, uh, and it basically goes why, why did it fail? Is our technical approach sound? And and two of the three I think two of the three tests that actually failed in 2021 there was nothing technologically wrong it was a mistake it was like just you know jv level mistakes on game day like come on man like why did you not plug that in or why did you you know you had a one instead of a zero here like come on and so that that's not a not technologically challenging it's just the engineering due diligence to, to speed with rigor is it was, what some of the issues were in 2021 uh, so I think that is a, that has turned into a, it could turn into a success story. We'll see when the, the cost per shot needs to come down. I think a lot to, to get to the buy rate. Uh, and I think the secretary of the air force has a lot to say about that right now. I think they're averaging about 12 to $14 million a missile right now is the, uh, what I remember right. Back in the ballistic missile days of the fifties, a lot of those programs had tons of failures,
2: but but they got to success, like the Polaris IRBM, that was the first submarine launch one, lots of failures, right? But they incrementally were getting there and that created an amazing capability for the United States. And I think we're seeing that potentially with with Arrow as well. But one of the issues here with, with Arrow was, you know, Congress, you had those failures, everyone was getting on Arrow and Congress zeroed out the production for FY23. And then lo and behold, you have, um, a successful test and now the money's not going to be there right so here comes this one of chicken or the egg issues with the budget where you have to kind of know exactly to a precise detail what you were going to succeed and when you were going to succeed for the money to have been there at the right time for you to be able to kind of go into production But a successful
0: that's course. true and the end one data point of one, for context, when you actually have a test plan to run these uh, a new weapon through like an air launch weapon through test, and you look at design of experiments and different employment modes and uh, degradation and safeties and and what are, like, all these things the like the small diameter bomb uh, two SDB two, the 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 test plan had something like two hundred and fifty three weapon, but SDB two is to a much them
2: small like smaller less sophisticated and cheaper kind of
0: (laughs) well there's definitely i mean yeah it's it's definitely not the uh the scale of of this you're not going to drop 200 of these to get your test points right like that's not going to happen But it's more than one i i agree with you it's more than (laughs) one it's more than one yeah exactly like there's going to be some a little bit of testing but you know, it's a balance. If you want to speed speed to field, right? So you can field it, but it's going to have probably a bunch of asterisks. Like we don't know if this, if if you employ it like this, we have no idea what's going to happen. If you do this, we don't know what's going to happen. And so it, it'll probably field and go into production, but it'll probably have some caveats. I mean, that's why it's the, the, it's called the AGM 183A. You know, there's there's probably going to be a B and a C and a D as they iterate and continue to iterate on maybe the energetics gets better, the Warhead gets better, or the, the you know the the mid-phase uh guidance course correction how it actually like pivots and you know navigates and all those things that re- will remain to be seen and the more that you employ them, the more you, the more you find out you know i've employed hundreds of weapons and there's always there's always something new we have a weapon in the field for 20 years there's another thing will show up I'm like oh look at that never realized that was going to happen and no one had ever seen something before so the more that you employ them and use them the more that you're going to figure out the issues they'll start to manifest but getting into production of at least the first version that's a production ready version so i've got uh, at least the engineering rigor to do it allows you to to get enough quantities to learn those lessons to iterate on so i agree that there's some test points that we still need to get before we can go hey go into quote full rate production but you need the you need enough uh, missiles to do the testing to get the data points to prototype Whereas like IVAS, you can go by here's five thousand of them, and you get a lot of data points back. Uh, and so you can iterate, and so you can go into the rapid fielding uh, for IVAS. So it's a it's an interesting situation that we'll see how it'll develop over the next uh, the next twelve months or so. Are you guys ready for story time? Let's do it. All right, Eric, I'm, I'll start with you, and then uh, Matt, you're back with audio only, and then we'll we'll end with you. So go ahead, Eric. I want to I want to hear a, an awesome story about acquisitions. I'll
2: I'll set a little bit of context for you first, because when we estimate weapon systems costs, you always have to adjust for inflation, or the change in the purchasing power of the dollar over time. So, usually inflation was like 3%, that was kind of like the historical norm. And so, the price of something, just because the value of the dollar is decreasing, in 24 years at 3% inflation, the price is going to double, even though it's like the same amount of labor and material resources. So we often use as I said before the history to predict the future and so when you look at a fighter aircraft it's not three percent right the prices tend to grow between seven to eleven percent per year there's a bunch of studies so every year the cost of like the same quality type of fighter aircraft is supposed to increase roughly about ten percent so at like a ten percent price increase per year you're going to get a price doubling every seven years and In the department, like a lot of times, the guidance would say, "Well, just adjust for inflation, right?" So three percent, two percent. Now, this year, right, it's actually grown to eight or nine percent in in the in the economy at large. But let's just say it was three percent. So when we were predicting, you know, five years from now, I'm going to buy a fighter aircraft. I'm going to predict that it grows three percent per year on average. The labor cost, the material cost. But in reality, we know when we look at the past, the the labor and uh material rates were growing much faster than that closer to 10 percent right so shouldn't we be expecting those future costs to grow at 10 percent not at 3 percent doesn't this sound like hey we kind of sucked in the past so let's just kind of suck in the future and we're just gonna like bake in continuing growth where we could do better right like isn't technology doing more with less and if we just kind of keep baking in 10% or whatever inflation into the future then it's it's almost like you're running a mile and your target was six minute miles and now your target keeps growing and growing and now your your target to run a mile is 20 minutes so it's easy to get fat and slow and so this lieutenant colonel brings me in um, into his office and he says well look when I was a young lieutenant and I came into the pentagon I thought everything was messed up too And then i learned there was a reason for everything and i was just like well yeah okay i see all these smart people around me maybe he's right maybe 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 there is a reason for all this stuff and maybe i'm just not understanding what's going on um so it it took me a, a long time and a long journey to kind of understand the physics of the pentagon and how that worked and looking at the kind of like the history too right like how did the Kelly Johnsons and the Jack Northrop's back in the 40s and 50s, how did they do things? Um, did they have these t- types of processes that we had today? Uh, would they have kind of settled for, you know, this never-ending kind of cost escalation? And so that's kind of how I stumbled on this idea of PBBE reform and and kind of jumped my way out of the Pentagon. That's one story there um, where, as a cost estimator, you you look at it and you're just like, maybe we're not helping, you know, in the overall scheme by just trying to jack up prices so we get rid of cost growth rather than assuring that we can get the capacity and quantity uh, for the capability that's necessary. Norm Augustine had this quote that by the year 2054, the DoD could only afford one aircraft per year and all the services would have to share it uh, because the, the trend lines of how costs were growing for fighter aircraft and other aircraft
0: was going so fast that that's just what it looked like it would be you know in the distant future the other half of that quote is where i I find the the real humor it says that uh, for three and a half days each week uh the the navy would get the airplane for three and a half days a week the air force would get the airplane and then on the leap year that one day every four years the marine corps could have the airplane to fly for that one day (laughs) (laughs) that's it uh, all right, we're get, we're getting really short on time. Matt, give us a uh, give us a quick story. Okay, I'll be quicker.
1: Um, my my I have a rewarding story and a ridiculous story in terms of my experience. Um, the rewarding one, real quick, is that when I was on F thirty five, we literally were um, you know developing the EW system, and we did sort of a threat evaluation and quickly realized uh, we need to we need to beef this up based on some, some new threads of, that have come forward. Um, and the realization was so profound that uh, we sort of threw the book out on how we would normally do negotiations, which is, you know, send out an RFP, wait for a big proposal and, and do the whole thing. And we actually did a alpha contracting approach where me and a small team went to Lockheed's headquarters and within a week we negotiated their proposal and then we went to the subcontractor um uh, with the prime and negotiated uh their piece since they were they were really the developer of it. Um actually did it in a snowstorm where like could barely get to work and we were the only ones in the building. But but within like two weeks, we, we had a contract and I just think it just kind of showed to me at least that um that, uh, that that's what can be done when you really have collaboration. And that EW technology is actually foundation for the future block four and for uh the the new f15 EW. so that's the rewarding one the ridiculous one is really the whole munitions thing it just seems so relevant to me when i was in the building we were literally running out and we were on calls with centcom saying like you guys have to stop dropping two bombs when you can only you could do it with one and you know can you not drop the thousand pounder if you could drop the hundred you know like these types of kind of crazy conversations and then everybody in the building disbelieving us when we showed them the inventory numbers like i just remember a three star admiral being like no nope, that can't be right those aren't the right numbers and it's like no nope, we went. And we, we we got all the jdams off all the ships uh, out of the warehouses and uh, yep that is that is the number and we had been screaming for years and saying you guys are like short short uh shorting munitions in every budget cycle and it keeps getting dialed back but uh just just to see just to see the ridiculousness of how few people were tracking how bad we were on munitions uh was just uh just mind-blowing especially given where we're at today uh with with ukraine and and uh yeah i think the message just finally got across but it was it was a fun experience to be in the building when that was uh going
0: on so i was i was in dc working that same issue at the same time going like these are the numbers this is ridiculous like if people knew how little of these specific types of munitions actually existed like that would be a big problem (laughs) we need to fix ourselves before (laughs) someone calls our bluff yeah oh yeah all right that's it that's the show uh we'll continue playing with the format but thanks eric thanks matt for for joining me today if you've uh if you've liked what you've heard subscribe to the podcast leave us a rating and a review it really helps uh spread the word so think of that one person who you think would like this and then go tell them about it And then lastly, visit our website so you can join the newsletter. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been The Merge. See ya.